Well, welcome once again to the Playing Politics podcast, a collaboration between WCCO Radio and the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Adam Carter in for Chad Hartman again on this Wednesday, and we're joined by two members of the Star Tribune editorial board, DJ Tice and John Rash. Thank you both for being here again. Appreciate Thank it. Good to be here. Thank well, you for having let's, us. Uh, let's start with uh, the national political scene in North Korea. Uh, Kim Jong-un being Kim Jong-un now says that uh, this summit uh, with President Trump is in jeopardy, not ready to give up his nuclear weapons. Uh, I guess with Kim Jong-un, you come to expect the unexpected, right? Indeed, and yet the signals coming from Washington were that this was uh, you know, sailing smoothly along, and I think the only surprise is that the administration seems surprised, perhaps caught a little bit flat-footed relative to the public pronouncements by the Kim regime and the uh, previous summit with the South Korean president as well. Now, what is difficult to discern at this moment is whether this is a negotiation dynamic or whether this suggests a fundamental sharp departure from the direction of the summit and whether the summit will even transpire at this point. And I think that's why diplomats are often so extraordinarily and appropriately cautious about what they may say heading into any kind of a meeting and why a sitting U.S. president has never met with a North Korean leader, because usually with such high-level summits, the issues are worked out well in advance, and they may have some closing issues to get to at this point. This is clearly not the case with President Trump and Kim Jong-un, so we're going to have to see in the coming days whether the administration starts to back off on the summit as well. DJ? Yeah, I think um, over the course of time, as as this new relationship has developed, uh, many people have wisely pointed out that a whole sequence of American administrations have been frustrated and uh, had the rug pulled out from under them by uh, by this regime, uh, promised one thing or things seemed to be moving in one direction, and then they abruptly uh, uh renege or, or, or go a different way. So very, uh, very unpredictable, impulsive, and enigmatic as to, you know, what is driving uh, those decisions. Uh, but I, I think it is, as John suggests, you know, too early to know whether this really is derailing things or is or is just one of those twists and turns and some kind of a, a manipulation. Now, Kim Jong-un, obviously, he's already found President Trump, as as indeed we all have, uh, you know, to be a different breed of cat yeah. <laughs> entirely. And, uh, well you know, put. <laughs> he may have met his match in terms of impulsivity and unpredictability uh, with with this particular president. So I, w- I would keep the seatbelt fastened on this deal. <laughs> it seems like the president is leading, listening now to two competing voices from John Bolton and Mike Pompeo. Mike Pompeo, certainly more diplomatic approach, whereas John Bolton is the opposite, saying, look, let's get a hard line here. No nukes for North Korea. Tell, can, John, can you give us a, an idea of, uh, of what the president is hearing there? Well, I think you're quite correct, and you certainly and many others have seemed to observe the duality of the administration, and so does Kim Jong-un. They were quite clear in a public pronouncement about what they thought about John Bolton um, and were quite derisive of him being part of the administration in their official statement. So I think that, you know, the president clearly is on the track to want to meet him, to want to have a historic breakthrough here. And as he continues to be dogged by the Mueller investigation and some of the domestic dynamics that aren't going as well as perhaps he perceives the international aspect of his administration is going this is something he wants to move towards. So my sense is that perhaps Mike Pompeo has his ear more 
than John Bolton does at this point. But, you know, I think we have to also look at the fundamental reason why some of these regimes try to develop nuclear weapons, and it's for regime survival. And they look at the examples of Libya, of Iraq, which they never had weapons of mass destruction, but well before that they were trying to develop a nuclear facility, which Israel bombed um, and, and put out of, out of existence and, and stopped that nascent program at that point. And of course, some of the aspects of what's happening with Iran and the U.S. reneging on the JCPOA, the Iran deal. And so this is perhaps quite concentrating the mind of Kim Jong-un, and maybe he's trying to find a way to back out a little bit of it. Shifting uh, to Israel, the U.S. opens uh, its embassy in Jerusalem, and we've got uh, 60 dead uh, uh, in Gaza. Uh, certainly, as is always, has been a, a difficult, complicated situation there. But, DJ, with the, with the embassy now open in Jerusalem, what, how does that shift things as far as how we look at the, that part of the world? Well, I, you know, I think here again is a situation uh, of you know tragic and dangerous proportions that has uh, confounded and frustrated uh, you know one American administration uh, after another. Uh, it's long been American policy that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, and that in time. Uh, the American embassy should go there. Trump, of course, moved to to rapidly fulfill that as he had promised to do, and uh, triggered, in a sense, you know, the latest uh, eruption of, of of violence there. Although, when you've had violence for ninety years or doesn't so, take much. <laughs> it right. doesn't take very much, and it's it's kind of a chronic uh, situation. I, I, you know, certainly it is a signal that. America's alliance with Israel, that it's, if you will, uh, taking Israel's side in the ultimate uh, dispute, uh, you know, has has moved to a new uh, level. I think that's exactly the message that President Trump intended to send. Uh, as it always was the message he delivered as a uh, as a candidate. It certainly makes it more difficult to act as a broker in the in the uh, peace negotiations. Uh, although I, I have to confess to personal frustration with just seeing two sides that really don't want uh, to resolve this issue, who seem settled on a, a kind of low-level warfare that, as I say, they've been they've been having for 90 years. John. Well, TJ's quite right that, you know, both sides present quite perplexing and quite frustrating public policy issues. If you look at the Palestinians, they need a peace process within their own ranks because, of course, you have Gaza, which is ruled by Hamas, which the United States, European Union, and many other nations rightly consider a terrorist group, and the West Bank, which is run by the ostensibly more moderate Palestinian Authority, is headed by Mahmoud Abbas, who was just even further discredited by some sentiments he has said in his speech that were widely considered anti-Semitic. He even went to the extraordinary length of having to publicly apologize for them at this point. So there isn't really an available partner for peace. But that being said, Israel just celebrated their 70th year of existence. And most of those years, as we well know, have been characterized by conflict. And the future certainly looks to be the same unless they move somehow towards more of a two-state solution. And right now what's happening in Jerusalem is that the Israeli government is moving further away from that, and the ascendant forces are talking about a one-state solution. And ultimately, Adam, what you have then is a demographic dynamic where you may have more people of 
Palestinian origin in terms of the population. Eventually, if you look at where the pop, where you know the birth rates and, and where they're going, and Israel does not want to get into a situation where it is has to choose between either being characterized as a Jewish state or a democratic state. It, of course, was founded on and proudly wants to continue to be both. Before we uh, shift to local politics, one last item, uh, some more documents released today about this meeting at Trump Tower uh, from uh, last summer, or two summers ago, excuse me, and Am I reading this wrong? But from what I've seen of these papers so far, it looks like the Russians came back, tried to ask for another meeting, and they were rejected. Is that good news for the Trump administration? If that's if that's a complete uh, accounting, <laughs> and, and time will tell, uh, I, I I would say it probably improves the narrative from the the administration's point of view that at least at some point, some grown up in the room, uh, you know, realized that that per, persisting in in these kinds of contacts, uh, you know, was not appropriate and and not not a wise idea for them. DJ may be quite right here, but I think again, you know, the the issue is the details. Did they reject the meeting because they thought they got what they needed out of the first meeting? And, and if that becomes the narrative that, that is transcendent, then that is not good news for the administration. And from a broader perspective, the fact that we've just passed the one-year mark on the Mueller investigation and that this is really an issue that is still out there, not just for multiple congressional and, and other investigations, but for the voters as well. We're fewer than six months away from Election Day. And you know, this may still be a, an issue roiling uh, primary as well as the general election races. Turning to local politics now, we're in the final, the home stretch, the final days of the legislative session. Uh, a tax bill uh, in the Senate today, it appears, uh, headed for passage. Where do we stand there in terms of how the governor's uh, balances it with his version of this? Well, I've been covering the legislature for many years, and we stand just about where we always stand, uh, four or five days. They never uh, get done early, the right? End. They never <laughs> wrap it up. A, an apparently uh, immovable impasse <clears throat> on every front. <clears throat> Excuse me, uh, and uh, no likelihood of, uh, of of compromise in sight. And sometimes, indeed, nothing comes together, and then we have a special session or not. Uh, but. Uh, uh, it's also far from unheard of that in these last few days and the wee hours of the morning, the governor and the legislative leaders get together behind closed doors and voila, something, suddenly everything falls uh, into place. Whether that will happen here, I don't know. They don't need to do very much. They don't really need to do anything other than politically. Uh, some of those compulsions are, are strong, but... Uh, you know, they want the issues as well, so they, they want to keep their base happy on, on key points. So it's not impossible to imagine this one ending in gridlock. DJ is yeah. quite right that yeah. they don't have to do anything, but I think both sides sense they must do something to rectify the tax bill, the, the way that Minnesota taxes are structured relative to the new federal tax plan because there could be significant ramifications for many Minnesotans, and neither side wants that to happen in general and clearly to be specifically politically blamed for it at this point. But, you know, I think that that in itself looks very difficult to do at this point. Governor has been speaking and increasing the importance of the money going to schools that are facing shortfalls, so that seems to be his key negotiating point here. 
I think also we have to look, as Sherlock Holmes always said, the dog that didn't bark. What didn't happen um, during this legislative session? You had 90% of Minnesotans, according to a Minnesota poll in the Star Tribune, who felt that more action was needed on guns. Nothing happened regarding that issue. And even the hands-held bill that that had surfaced regarding texting. And you, you think about an issue that should have been able to garner a bipartisan majority and the governor's support, and somehow that didn't get done as well. So it'll be quite compelling to see how voters react to these. DJ, how difficult is it to negotiate with a governor who doesn't, who's not run, obviously not running for re-election, who's a lame duck governor? Well, I, in one sense, it's it's harder because you don't have the leverage against him of of his worrying how, <clears throat> excuse me, how it's going to play in the uh, election campaign. Uh, on the uh, on the other hand, you know he has less at stake in that in that sense, and, and more concern about uh, his legacy and, and the things that are important to him in, in in that longer term way. So on on some budget things, in terms of uh, actions that will preserve his legacy of uh, fiscal stability, which is very important to this governor, that gives you something to to work with. Whereas a governor running for re-election might not. Uh, uh, you feel so strongly about that. I do think on the tax front, uh, particularly, both sides are you know torn between visions of having complete control uh, of, for their party uh, come January, when if if there is no new tax bill, they would have the cover of the necessity of doing one to really transform the the, the tax system. But they also have the nightmare of the other party having complete control by January. And, and being in that same situation. Uh, I did want to say I think the one thing that might uh, happen, uh, even if nothing else does, is a bonding bill uh, because they all like to have some kind of project uh, to uh, boast about back uh, home in the district. And, and so that could still come together. I'll, I concur with DJ on that last point, although just reflective of how deeply <laughs> disparate both sides are, Governor Dayton quipped when the House and Senate bonding bills came forward looks great. Where's the other half, in effect, <laughs> is what he said. And, and it's about half the spending that the governor has suggested. But my sense is, especially in the waning days, he would probably, however grudgingly, you know, be willing to go with half a loaf than none at this point, And that's probably what will happen. And some of that other half might get added on as they go, too, because you you, you got to round up 60 votes or 60 percent of the votes. And, you know, so they're going to need to uh, find some additional projects that that get them some additional votes. The last 48 hours of the news cycle focused on this Fox 9 television report about um, 100, up to $100 million apparently leaving the country. Some of it uh, they claim following, based on their sources, falling into uh, the hands of uh, Somali terrorists. Uh, it was the subject of a Senate hearing, an emergency Senate hearing yesterday. What impact does this story have on the final days of the legislature, but it presumably have on uh, the, the time in between the next session? I think it's safe to say that it kills any hope for additional funding on the child care front. Uh, that's probably the the, the the clearest thing it does. In terms of the additional regulation enforcement uh, funding, it may be complicated to get that done, to get that legislation uh, pulled together and, and passed, but but that certainly is possible. Uh, we should say it, it certainly has become murky in the last day or so yeah. as to exactly how extensive this fraud is and how real uh, is the evidence of, of a direct 
connection to terrorism. I think all of that is is yet to be known, but it obviously fuels uh, various kinds of anxieties and and animosities here. And uh, you know, it's uh, it, politically, it's 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 great for base motivation on yeah. both sides. And indeed, Governor Plenty jumped on it right away in terms of his campaign against Jeff Johnson and others for the Republican nomination for governor, um, which is of course upcoming with the, with the convention here. He has since announced that he is not going to go for the party nomination here. But I think it also says something about the legislature. We had in the aforementioned conversation about issues that were not getting any kind of traction, however popular with the public, meaning uh, some response to gun tragedies, some response to texting and driving and adding to that the opioid crisis, and nothing is really happening with that. And lo and behold, here comes this report on Fox 9, and immediately you have politicians move and you have hearings and you have at least the potential for some kind of legislation. So it does show that when they are politically motivated, they can act and and they can move forward. But that is not what's characterized this legislative session. DJ, is surprising at all that Governor uh, Pawlenty will skip the nominating convention? No, uh, not particularly. I think, uh, uh, you know, this has become a fairly common practice in uh, recent years. Uh, Governor Dayton uh, originally and back in 2010 uh, skipped the convention altogether, went to the primary, and Pawlenty got into the race, you know, so late that it was pretty clear from the beginning that at least that his strategy was based on uh, on a victory in the primary and not necessarily on uh, on the endorsement. Uh, you know, it still is a somewhat uh, risky strategy because primary electorates, even though they're larger, obviously, than the than the delegates to caucuses and, and conventions, still they're, they're strongly influenced by real loyalist rank-and-file Republicans, and they're going to resent the fact that the party process uh, got sort of disrespected here. It's all about the money, though, John, and certainly uh, the fundraising. Governor Pawlenty is certainly pacing well ahead of uh, Jeff Johnson and uh, the Mayor Woodbury, if, if her name escapes Mayor me. Mayor Giuliani okay. Stevens, Thank yes. You. And, uh, but yeah. Will they pose a threat considering the money difference there? You know, I think uh, reflective of what DJ just said, it depends on turnout and, and who comes out for that primary. And August, you know, is usually the time to head up to the North Shore or, or you know, to farms and, and go to southern Minnesota and some of the, the wonders there and not centralize your thoughts in terms of politics. So they have low turnout and that may impact. Certainly, Governor Plenty will be favored because of name recognition, because of the deep pockets. He wants to train that money, however, on the general election. And I think it'll be equally compelling to see what comes out of the DFL convention because although it certainly appears in early round in caucus in night that um, Representative Walz is has the momentum here, he certainly doesn't have it locked up. And, you know, there are some strong groups that have rallied behind Rebecca Otto as well as um, Aaron Murphy and, and some other candidates. So I, th- I think that uh, that certainly could go potentially to a primary as well. We are, are on our way toward a relatively uh, high-profile primary in August, uh, partly because of the Palenti uh, role in it, uh, but also we're going to have a primary on the DFL uh, Senate side. We may end up yet with a, a primary on the DFL governor's race. Uh, the race that John was talking about, and we have primaries coming up in several congressional 
district. So the, it, it, as primaries go, this may be relatively high turnout, and that's going to have some uh, unpredictable effects as well. Particularly yeah. in the 8th District, where it looks like Pete Stauber, who is the Republican candidate, unchallenged at this point, clearly has some momentum in a district that was traditionally, historically DFL territory, went heavily for President Trump in the 2016 election, and this is looked at by national Republicans as one of the few open seats that they think they're able to flip. Yeah, busy summer uh, for sure. Uh, time is short here. Just one last thing I wanted to bring up, the passing of Nick Coleman. Uh, people who've uh, read newspapers in this town for uh, the last 20 to 30 years certainly know Nick's work. Uh, DJ, just some thoughts about Nick Coleman and uh, his life and his uh, his his uh, skill as a journalist. Yeah, we were talking about it on the way over here. I've known Nick for um, uh, many decades, uh, both at the Star Tribune and uh, the Pioneer Press, where he also worked many years, both as a, a newsroom columnist and uh, a columnist on the uh, opinion pages. You know, Nick was a uh, spirited and uh, sprightly writer, uh, very lively. He was a tough critic of, uh, of corruption and shenanigans uh, in politics and could skewer the pompous as, uh, and in as journalism, well of any, right? and in journalism and in every other walk of life for that matter. Uh, and, uh, you know, you know he, uh, he produced compelling copy of very many different kinds for many years. I remember Nick's role at the Pioneer Press for some years as a kind of go-to uh, reporter, you know, sort of the, the kind of texture reporter on big stories, you know, whether they were disaster stories or political conventions or what have you, the newsroom would would send him out to, you know, sort of get beyond the events themselves to, you know, talk to the people involved, get some of the uh, some of the feelings, some of the voices, and he had a wonderful gift for that. I think in some ways was his his true calling. I think his work will be missed. John? Indeed, his work will be missed, and it's quite striking that it's been several years since he's had a regular byline in the Star Tribune, and his style, his personality, um, and his body of work are still widely remembered and, and often referenced. So, you know, it clearly, of course, is, is a journalism lost, and most importantly and profoundly for his friends and family whom we all wish peace. Yeah, too young, that's for sure. DJ Tice, John Rash from the Star Tribune Editorial Board. Thank you both for being with us again. Adam Carter for, from WCCO Radio. This has been Playing Politics, collaboration between WCCO Radio and the Star Tribune.